our emphasis and theme for the day has been resting the mind on right intention. Right intention being one of the paths in the Noble Eightfold Path uh, to me says that it is also a noble act. (laughs) And I really like that word noble. When I looked it up, the definition that I chose was uh, worthy of respect. Worthy of respect. I find that somewhat inspiring to think that I think teachers are now saying 2,600 years ago. For a long time, Buddha was 2,500. Now we've at least made him 2,600 years ago that he had the realization to develop, to find this path. So right intention, we've been doing the practices related to that particular theme looking at and exploring renunciation, non-ill will, and non-harmfulness. What I want to do in this talk is to go into a little more depth that hopefully will bring the practices and the comments I've made so far into somewhat of an integrated understanding. And um, so that's my intention. This theme of right intention is offering us specific ways for developing our ethical and mental capacity. The mind needs to be at rest. The mind seeks peacefulness. Ask yourself that. Is that true for you? Does the mind want to be at rest? Do you want to be peaceful? If our minds are engaged in these habits of either harming or having cruel thoughts towards others or ourselves, we can't be peaceful if we are pursuing every spontaneous desire that pops into our minds, it's like, how can we possibly be peaceful? So doing the practice and developing understanding around right intention impacts us very deeply. Our ethical, our mental way of being in the world. Right intention is a focus for skillful action. So these three aspects of practice that we have worked with today, renunciation, renunciation, bringing an end to craving, loving kindness, helping us to abandon ill will, and the heartfelt practice of compassion, abandoning cruelty. If each one of us can work with those practices in our own lives, think of what we then can extend to the world. 
it has to start with us as individuals. So we've devoted some time today to each one of these practices to, to get a little taste, to, to see, you know, what is this for me? What did I notice in my practice today? How did desire show up or craving, you know, the extended version of desire? Did I suffer from some level of ill will toward whatever, the baseball game or the pounding on the roof or myself for not being more perfect or doing this practice right? Yeah, right intention. Ooh, what is that? So noticing how craving, desire, ill will, or any, any level of cruelty shows up for us. That was part of our practice today, is to look honestly at either the presence or the absence of these. Being able to look at our experience directly is what brings understanding. And out of that understanding, wisdom comes. Wisdom being knowing what causes the suffering and knowing what can end it. So if relative to this practice today and this theme of right intention, what causes suffering and what can end it? What causes suffering is when I want desire something to be different than it is right now. Or I want, I want to be somewhere else. I want to be in Hawaii instead of sitting on my cushion. This is my cushion. What causes suffering? Any thought, word, action that is intending ill will or cruelty, harmfulness in some way, We can see it directly. We know it. We know how it feels. We recognize the thoughts. Now you know, hopefully, how to bring an end to it. So I'll go into some of that a little bit more. So why is right intention important as an understanding for us? There's so much that we hear, read about uh, these days. You know, it's like, what was your intention? You know, what did you intend? Why did you intend that? So intentions pervade our everyday life, certainly, right? We all have intentions. Intentions are different than goals. Goals are future-oriented. And there's nothing wrong with goals. Intention is a dynamic way for us to live in the moment. It's how I am being right now. It's the framework for how our minds work. So one definition that I found was intentionality is the act of choosing. It's a volitional act. So we have a choice. We also have a responsibility. In Focused and Fearless, Shyla's book, some of you know Shyla Catherine's book, I'm sure. 
she has this to say, intention is the basis of all deliberate action. So we can see the relationship between mindfulness practice, how that helps us to deepen our practice if we are living from right intention. Our intentions can be our thoughts, our attitudes. They affect not only the immediate event that's happening for us, but that then sets in place the future, the next moment. So relative to these three aspects of practice that we've focused on today, we can see how if I have an intention in the moment to let my mind spin a story about something that I would really like to have, that's going to either create agitation for me in the next moment or some kind of craving. Oh, I must have that. Oh, I saw that beautiful shirt. Oh my gosh, I must have it. I wonder if it's still there. Oh, I wonder if they have my size. Oh, I wonder if they have my color. You know, and then the mind is off and off and off. Way down the road somewhere. So right intention helps us to recognize where am I right now? Am I in this moment? Am I in the past? Oh, I wish I had said said such and such that way, what was wrong with me? Or in the future, gee, I wonder what my husband's going to make for dinner tonight. So right intention is current. It's dynamic. It's present moment. Philip Moffat in his book, uh, Dancing with Life, says, it's an active engagement with the world. Now, sometimes our intentions stem from unconscious desires and wishes, right? So we get these impulses, you know, to have something a certain way, and it often occurs with our habitual tendencies. So we can't always count on our intentions being skillful. And one example that I thought of is, have any of you ever had an intention of breaking an, you know, an unwholesome eating habit? Oh boy, I'm going to cut back on such and such. Sugar, caffeine, whatever the, the bad thing is for you. Now, I am really going to do that starting tomorrow, right? Okay. So tomorrow comes, and yes, I feel good. I'm really going to stay with this. You know, so a few days or maybe a week goes by or two weeks or whatever, and it's like, oh, oh, just a teeny. Just, I just want a little teeny. You know, and then more time goes by, and it's like, let's see, I know I made a commitment to myself, an intention to, to not do that, but I'm cutting back. I'm still a good person. <laughs> uh, 
And the next thing you know, uh, we're back in our old habit and we've forgotten that we even had an intention to change that lifestyle point. Even if it was seemed somewhat trivial at the time, you know? It's like, what happened to our intention? Right intention is something very different. It requires effort. The mind resists confinement. So the minute we start saying, okay, no more of that, the ego will start finding ways to counter that, right? Oh, it's not going to matter. So if we lack motivation, then the effort is not going to be there to do this practice, to bring understanding, to bring wisdom to the benefit of right intention. And I think we can see that just having willpower does not correct our unskillful actions. It can help a little bit, but we need to have a deeper understanding of how the mind works, what my responses are, what my patterns are, and what are some useful tools I can bring to work with that. So right intention carries this deeper significance of enabling us to change how we perceive eye candy, nose candy, tongue candy, so forth. Right intention develops the mind in a wholesome way, and that enables us to bring skillful action to our lives, to our choices. We begin to take more responsibility for our attitude. You know, I can talk this way to you because You've all been around a while. You've been around the block a few times, as they say. I don't think I could uh, give this level of a talk to, uh, I know I couldn't, to a group of teenagers. You know, they're not ready to, most of them, to hear this. So I'm, I'm being pretty frank with you because I also think that as we age, We know time is passing. And uh, how can I make the most useful moments of my life be beneficial for myself and for others? So this practice of right intention helps to address the very core of the Buddha's teachings of what is the cause of our suffering, craving, So the context for right intention in in Buddhism, as I've said, it comes from uh, the Noble Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths. The teachings and, and the practices today are not about the Four Noble Truths. That's a whole teaching in itself. But I was very inspired. Last year I gave a... um, a talk here at IMSB on the 12 ways of knowing, which brings uh, another understanding to the Four Noble Truths. And in that process of of preparing for that talk, I was struck by right intention, and I wanted to explore it more for myself in my own practice. And so 
today is uh, kind of coming from that inspiration that I got of looking more closely at the Four Noble Truths. And the Noble Eightfold Path in itself is a very amazing teaching. Again, if you go on the IMSB website under Teachings link, pull down, Buddhist list, print out the Noble Eightfold Path, you will see that each aspect of those paths has rich ways of understanding each part. So today, I'm just focusing on right intention. But as we look at the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, anytime we're talking about any aspect of those teachings, they support one another. It's like a matrix. So right intention is aligned and follows right view. And all of the other aspects of the path, it's, a, it's a, just an amazing teaching in itself, the whole path. We begin to integrate these understandings in our lives more by a day such as this. And if you feel curious or in some way a little inspired, you can do more reading. been reading from a number of my favorite books today. And there's a lot of teachings on it, as with all of the aspects of the Noble Eightfold Path. So practicing right intention. To do that requires mindfulness. We have to be able to settle the mind on the present moment, to be fully present in order to discern what is it? Where is my mind right now? What track is it following? What path is it creating? Right intention is also sometimes referred to wise intention or wise resolve. So that word resolve, it it carries a lot of weight. You know, it's like, this is not just, oh, I'm going to change what I eat. It's like resolve. I'm going to do this. Whether it feels comfortable or not, I'm suggesting that to do this practice deeply, we're talking about something more than just our eating habits. That may be part of the whole situation, but we're talking here about how am I developing my mind and my heart. Engaging with right intention is contrary to the way of the world. The way of the world is desire, following our impulses. Oh, I want this. Oh, I must have that. In order to be able to implement mindfully, looking at what we're doing, what we're thinking, what we're saying, we have to be able to slow down a bit. At least I do. Maybe... Maybe some other practitioners can (laughs) get there quickly. I don't know. I I haven't practiced Zen very much in my life, and I don't know if that... I have a sense that, you know, sometimes Zen practitioners can really move around quickly and still be very present. I need to slow down. (laughs) I have to develop concentration to be present, to be mindful. 
to be able to read, know, understand, and be with my experience. Right intention requires us to investigate how our values influence our minds. Out of that comes our actions. If we choose to engage with right intention, we're setting a vision for ourselves to, to the best of our ability, to live with those three aspects that we've worked with today. Renouncing, craving, letting go, bringing kindness, countering ill will, and bringing compassion, countering cruelty. John Peacock, whom I mentioned earlier, he's a current uh, teacher from England, he's quite a Buddhist scholar, says that we can let go renunciation when we see the lack of pleasure in craving. We have to want to give it up. Letting go enables us to come back to well-being and peacefulness. Even if it's momentary, you can feel it. You can, you can feel it. You know how you come back from the grocery store and you've got your arms full and it's heavy and maybe a long walk from your driveway to your kitchen and so forth. When you set that pack down, there's a relief. Renunciation helps us to find this freedom from attachment. So a definition of to renounce, to give up by formal declaration, to disown, voluntarily put aside. And again, I I want to read something from Philip Moffat's Dancing with Life. If you genuinely want to be less caught in clinging and suffering, you need to develop some form of renunciation practice that interrupts this pattern and disengages from the ego's drive to have what it wants. Practicing renunciation means that you consciously give up certain attitudes, views, behaviors, and goals because they lead you to clinging and suffering. Three suggestions for renunciation. Renunciation practices that directly challenge your ego's desire to always be in charge. Number one, renounce your attachment to being right. Number two, no longer measure the success of your life by how many of your wants are met. And three, give up being the star of your own movie. Remember (laughs) six billion worlds out there? Renunciation enhances rather than diminishes your life. When I used the word renunciation earlier, I asked if it created any ripples in anybody. We sometimes have an idea that renunciation is like, oh, that's for people that are the monastics or whatever. Not for me. But... These teachers that I've read from today and and what I did in my preparation, they are all, all saying the same thing. Renunciation enhances rather than diminishes your life. But this is one of those 
aspects of Buddhism that the Buddha taught don't believe that because I have said it or that any teacher has said it. Check it out for yourself. See if that's so. So we gain something better by doing this practice. And today perhaps you noticed some ways that desire arose for you. Could either be a sensory experience, a physical world experience, a mental world experience. Desire comes and touches us in each of those places, in our emotions. Have you ever had an emotional flavor arise for you that you didn't want to have? Am I the only one? (laughs) No, okay. So with this practice and including our mindfulness, We notice what happens when our desires are satisfied. How long does the satisfaction last? Did we want that to, or expect that to be a permanent happiness or satisfaction? Well, of course, you all know that that's not true or possible. When our desires are not satisfied, what goes on? Do we get upset, get in a snit, (laughs) whatever that is. Do we project onto somebody else our dissatisfaction, our unhappiness? So, So that's a lot of material about renunciation and its importance. Let me speak for a couple of minutes about loving kindness and compassion. I think those two aspects of the practice and the teachings, they're much more apparent, right? I mean, we know when we are suffering from a feeling of ill will. We know when harmfulness or cruelty has taken over our minds and we're, we're suffering. Loving kindness and compassion are part of the Brahma Viharas, the four immeasurables. We see them show up over and over again in the Buddha's teachings. And they're there for a reason. We can use them anytime. We don't have to be in retreat. We don't have to be any special place. You can be sitting at a red light with your eyes wide open and feel inspired to say or feel loving kindness for yourself, for someone walking down the street, for a friend that you just remembered is having a hard time. These practices help us cultivate generosity in addition to the qualities inherent in them themselves. Generosity puts us in touch with others. If I'm able to bring some kind words to a stranger or listen to a friend who is hurting, there's a generosity in that. Not that I'm a great generous person. It's, it's a natural generosity of the heart. And again, these also are noble acts, noble ways of being in the world, of ending ill will and cruelty. So we're contributing kindness and, and compassion to the world. 
you know it when you feel it, right? You know when you're in the space of genuine loving kindness. You feel it. You recognize it. You know when you're in touch with your kind heart. Pema Chodron uh, calls it your soft spot. I like that. When we're able to engage with loving kindness and compassion, judgment is absent, criticism is absent. These practices en- enable us to live in, uh, in the world in a very different way. And I don't need to remind you of all of the challenges that there are in the world to prompt us to do this practice. There's plenty of those. The cultivation of any one of the aspects of right intention can be done for, we could do them for months. That could be a single practice for a whole year. As long as we're in this world, we're going to encounter opportunities for bringing more loving kindness and compassion. So there's another aspect to this practice that I want to emphasize, and that's the importance of reflection, or uh, sometimes it's called inquiry, but personal reflection. We have to uh, be very honest with ourselves. Bhikkhu Bodhi states, deep reflection and investigation are necessary to restructure our values. Whatever one reflects upon frequently becomes the inclination of the mind. Observation and reflection are necessary for me to see what intentions I am working from. I begin to listen and notice the words in my head, my mind, the actions I take, which ones are beneficial, which ones cause suffering. So there is something called wrong intention. That's when we expect or seek happiness through our desires, when thoughts of greed, hatred, or delusion take over. Those are incompatible with the path to liberation. So right intention is our commitment to see, to understand, and to do our very best to bring good intentions, kindness, compassion to our worlds. So one thing I can do is to pause before I speak or take an action and if I'm ambivalent, you know, if I'm, you can kind of sense when a certain habit pattern is ready to pounce, right? So we take a pause right there and we ask ourselves, what's most important right now? And this is an ongoing practice for us. I recognize that some of my patterns, and I've made a commitment to myself, certain ones that, that I'm willing to look at. I may be practicing with this tendency to my last breath, and I'm willing to do that, absolutely willing to do that, if that's what it takes. That's my personal resolve. So little by little, I'm dropping drops in the water jug. Investigating and practicing with mindfulness and right intention helps us bring an end to thoughts that lead to craving and desire. 
the very cause of our suffering. And another quote from John Peacock, if sati, the Pali word for mindfulness, is not there in ordinary life, it is not working. If it is only there on retreat and absent in your daily life, this is also problematic. What makes integration so difficult is that desire or craving is not just something added to our experience, it is literally built into our cognitive process. We are, if you will, born with the pathology of desire. However, Bhikkhu Bodhi offers us from the suttas a little more hope. Noble wisdom is like a knife that cuts, severs, and carves away the inner defilements, the fetters, and the bonds. So understanding is paramount to bringing change to our intentions. With our mindfulness practice, we're able to see suffering when it's present. We can see what brought it on, and we have some remedies for bringing it to an end. Oh, craving, ill will, cruelty. Oh, may I be at peace right now with understanding how our thoughts and actions contribute to our well-being or our suffering, we begin to make different choices and our intentions for carrying them out. So there's a short story in Gil Fransdahl's book, A Monastery Within, that addresses this. Appropriate instruction. One of the monastery's old monks had become a hermit living deep in the mountains, a a two-and-a-half-day hike over difficult mountain paths. Many visitors made the trek to receive advice and teachings from the old man. He was reputed to have an uncanny ability to know just what each visitor needed. Prior to giving instruction, the hermit asked that the visitor promise not to tell anyone what advice or instruction he or she received. After the promise was made, the hermit would simply say, what are you not willing to pay attention to? This was the only thing he would ever say to anyone seeking his help. Many visitors were first perplexed by this question, but by the time they had walked the two-and-a-half-day trek out of the mountains, they invariably would praise the hermit for giving them just the instruction they needed to hear. So we might remind ourselves of long-term benefits of bringing understanding through right intention, recognizing the impact on our minds of desire, ill will, and cruelty, and stepping aside. Have any of you studied Aikido? Anybody know a little bit about Aikido? You know how your adversary is coming at you. Oh, you want to go there? Okay, let me, let me make a path for you. So it's like stepping aside, let the arrow go. It doesn't have to hit us. Our intentions, noticed or unnoticed, gross or subtle, contribute either to our suffering or to our happiness. Intentions are sometimes called seeds. What seeds are we cultivating, skillful, wholesome. So don't let the unskillful or the unwholesome take root. So the ongoing practice of remembering right intention and 
the elements that support that. Offer protection for the mind, as I said. What are we protecting the mind from? The mind that seeks craving, ill will, cruelty. Not by silence does an ignorant fool become a sage. The wise person who, as if holding a set of scales, selects what's good and avoids what's evil, is for that reason a sage. Whoever can weigh these two sides of the world is, for that reason, called a sage. Not by harming living beings is one a noble one. By being harmless to all living beings is one called a noble one, the Dhammapada. So with this practice, understanding of the importance of right intention, we're beginning to take responsibility for our disposition, our attitudes, our actions. We're not only training the mind in skillfulness, but we're training the heart in kindness and compassion. Right intention offers us a place of inspiration and motivation. It's a wholesome practice. It enables us to live with greater ease in our lives and helps us to be in the world with a kind heart. May all beings know peace of mind and heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.